0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Happy Easter. Uh, Thanks for coming today if you're visiting with family, maybe, or just just walked in, maybe, for the first time. Uh, Welcome to you especially. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and we are um, just glad you're here. We're taking a break from uh, Acts today, our normally scheduled uh, sermon series, which will be in uh, through Christmas. This is our last break, actually, so we're not going to take any breaks in the summer or the fall, uh, just today for Easter, so... Uh, we're breaking, though, to talk about something a bit more explicitly eastery, like we normally do, unless something kind of lines up well in our sermon series. So we're going to do that today by preaching through Revelation 5, so if you have a Bible or a phone app you want to turn there, that's, uh, that'd be great. Some of it's in, your, in the sermon inserts in your worship folder. Uh, you can follow along on some of the key parts there if you want, or on screen here in a second, but really easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible, so just kind of turn to the very end and look for chapter five. Uh, so Revelation, a couple quick things on Revelation if you're brand new to that book or it's been a while. It is uh, what we call an apocalypse, genre-wise, meaning it's a, a picture into reality by way of heavy symbolism, as if the hidden things are being revealed and uh, disclosed, and so and God's doing that, and Jesus is doing that, and John's kind of the recipient, the author, and, and uh, we by extension. So, so John, the author, has this dream, basically, or vision uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, essentially, at work in both the past, present, and future. So today's vision is of Jesus Christ. He, he is in heaven. We actually sang a, a song about it, a couple of songs about it actually before, so you'll see some language kind of tie in here in a second too. But it's a vision of Jesus Christ in heaven, exalted and raised and victorious and being worshipped by these four living creatures, 24 elders, and these angels as well uh, who, are, who are mentioned. So chapter four kind of sets the stage for it a little bit where he is celebrated for being the creator. And now in chapter 5, he's specifically being praised for being the, the Redeemer and the Deliverer and the Savior of, of sinners, his, his church. So, um, but but all the way, along the way, we can run into some couple of twists as well and surprises that end up teaching us a lot a lot about Jesus. And I think, actually, the most essential components to Christian theology and reality that there is, is in this passage. And it's not like it's hidden, it's not like we have to really like go digging for those things because they're in so many places of the Bible, but... But in Revelation, uh, being heavily symbolic and poetic and kind of hard to access in some ways, uh, we really see in Revelation 5, and other places too in the book for sure, but in Revelation 5, these twists that happen, these surprises, these left turns out of nowhere that end up teaching us these these essential components to Christian theology and I think just human reality that that really there is. And so so let's read Revelation 5, but but first, when we read this book, uh, just to remind you or to tell you for the first time, don't try to figure out all the particulars. When you read, or you'll be beating your head against the wall like I kind of was all week in one sense. But you'll be beating your head against the wall and not really kind of getting the, the big picture. Someone said before about Revelation that it's, it's, a, it's a picture book more than a puzzle book. So don't try to puzzle it out. There's no like hidden code to it. It's Revelation, remember, meaning it's about revealing truth. That's what the word means. It's about God revealing hidden things and things that we've already come to understand from other places in the Bible that are more clear on these same things. And so we'll talk about those as well to help us. But for now, just take it in from the 30,000-foot view and enjoy this and see the good news in it and some of the songs we just sang in it and ask yourself, why is this good news? Where is the gospel in it? What is this telling me about Jesus? That's one of the best questions you can ever ask about any passage in the Bible. What is this telling me about Jesus? Because that's what God wants is to tell you about him. Much more, much more than asking you what to do with your life is him saying, I want creation, all of creation, but specifically people to know about me. I want them to share in me, to know about my goodness and grace. And Revelation 5 is that. In fact, if we don't come at it with that perspective, it really makes no sense. All right, so... Revelation 5, let's uh, dive right in. I'm going to read the whole thing, the whole chapter, and we'll come back and look at this. uh, Three big things today, kind of eastery revelations uh, of sorts or images uh, that uh, we can celebrate together on Easter. All right, Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, speaking of God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, All right, I barely feel like I need to say anything about this now. I don't want to spoil that with my commentary, but all right, I got to say something. So here we go: uh, three Easter elements to John's vision in Revelation five. So there's a lot more than three, of course, but uh, three big ones that kind of helps us to walk through it. So the first thing we see right at the outset is a scroll. This is how the vision starts. John sees in God's hand the one seated on the throne. In the first five verses, he sees in God's hand a scroll sealed with seven seals. And then an angel shouts a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? As if he's shouting it to the whole universe. And we kind of get a glimpse at that because we see the answer says no one's worthy. And it describes like where these unworthy creatures are. And it's everywhere. But it's as if he's shouting to the entire universe and even beyond. Who is worthy to open this scroll? And so before we talk more about what the scroll might symbolize, we'll kind of get to some things there, and there's more than I'm going to say today, but we'll talk about some things. But before we get to that, don't miss the big picture here. The big picture is a problem is presented, right? A problem's presented in heaven before the throne. God is there. The angels are there. The living creatures are there. The elders elders are there, whoever they are. We don't know who they are, but they're there, 24 of them. They're there. These bowls of, of the prayers of the saints are there. It's this wonderful heavenly, heavenly vision. But there's a problem kind of amidst them. There's a sealed scroll, and no one in heaven, no one in earth, no one under the earth is able to open it. So try to picture that with the language the Bible employs here, but even kind of go past that in your mind. Put yourself in John's shoes. He's like the only human right now is kind of able to access this, this vision. So picture it. This means the strongest of angels, the wisest, most moral, and just best of people, or the darkest of demons, can't do it. And then we see John's response to the problem, which is loud weeping, which you might think is kind of odd because it's just a scroll, right? It's one of the questions I've always had about this passage is, really, John? I mean, loud weeping? Maybe one tear down the cheek, but loud weeping? Um, It's just a scroll. But what this tells us, this is not just about seals, right? No one's going to cry over, uh, over an un, like an unseal or a seal that's unsealable scroll. It's more than just about seals. This is about an insurmountable problem, kind of like death, or really, our salvation is sinners. As Jesus himself says in the New Testament before he dies, he says, "It's impossible for people to be saved. It's impossible for sinners to be saved into God's presence. It's impossible. It'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, which is to say it is impossible. And so wouldn't you weep if that's what the scroll symbolized? If the scroll symbolized like an insurmountable problem like like our salvation? You and I, like John here, are completely unsavable. That's why he's weeping. All right, but then, kind of out of nowhere, the solution presents itself by way of one of the elders. So one of the elders gets up, one of the 24, and puts his arm around John and says, weep no more, don't cry. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus Christ, he can open the scroll and he can open the seven the seven seals. And so right off the bat here in Revelation 5, we, we learn something very important about Christianity here. Over and against the sermons and philosophies and songs of the world, And that is, solutions don't come from helping us to overcome things ourselves. Biblical solutions, the the, the biggest problems of of our life and in the universe, the solutions to those things don't come from helping us to overcome them, but rather by us taking a back seat to Jesus. That's the 30,000 foot view here, right? Just kind of like shelf for a minute the heavy symbolism and say there's a problem There's loud weeping because no one can solve the problem, especially people. And then the elders say, ah, but there's one who can, and it's not you. It's Jesus. It's the lion. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root and the son of David, Jesus Christ. All right, and so, like, it's it's very significant, then, that, that this takes place, that the angel, or the elder, rather, doesn't put his arm around John and say, don't cry, John. Here, Let me show you how you too can open the seals. If you try harder and set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything, John. does not that be lame if that was the case? But that's how humanity today, if humanity wrote Revelation 5, if we wrote Revelation 5, if humanity wrote Revelation 5, that's what it would say because those are the mantras of the world. Try harder. there's a problem, then just tackle it. Take the mountain. Figure it out. Do the math walk across the water figure it out you can do it don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do it and then we have revelation 5 that that burns that idea that speaks back against that idea and absolutely destroys it absolutely destroys it in speaking against it all right and in fact that's actually what sin is if you know and this is the reason why humanity would do this, why we would all do this. I'm speaking to all of us do, Christian or not. This is like at our core, this is who we are. This is what sin is, is we don't want a God who tells us we can't do it. We want a God who tells us we can. We want a God who flatters us, but that's what sin is. There's a lot of symptoms to sin that looks like sins is that we normally think about it, like murder and adultery and pride and anger and things like that, but sin at the core is maybe acknowledging God, but just saying we just don't need him that much, and He's there to flatter me and support me and be sort of be there for me as I solve my own problems on an occasional basis. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is you and I can't save ourselves. We can't break the seals. We can't unlock the solution to use imagery from this passage. No matter how hard we try, but the gospel says Jesus can, and the gospel further says he has. Especially on Easter when he walked out of that tomb. He has. He's the only one who's ever done that. He has the authority now. He holds the keys and he unlocks the seals. Furthermore, here his name is the Lion of Judah. Lots to say about this, but a couple quick things. He's also called the Root of David. These are important, heavily theological, but important theological identifiers and names for Jesus because on the former side of things, it means that he is from the tribe of kings. He's from Judah, not the tribe of the priests or the law, which was Levi or the tribe of Moses who would come after him. Again, lots to say about that, but essentially it means, the Bible makes a big deal about this, and it means that Jesus is a new kind of priest king, descended from David in connection with whom nothing was ever said about the law. David, you couldn't be a priest and a king in the Old Testament. That was actually a lawless thing or unlawful thing to to do. And so in connection with David, nothing was ever said about the law. And Jesus came from him, not from the tribe of the Ten Commandments, or the tribe of morality, or the tribe of do this and you will live. Jesus didn't come from that tribe. That's that's the whole point. So it means that the covenant, the New Testament and salvation for us, that Jesus came in to usher would have less to do with commandment keeping and more to do with his lion-like resurrection. So there's lots more to say about that, like I was saying, if you know who Melchizedek is from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and Hebrews like 5-7 to in and, and context, that, that's a big deal as well. He's linked up with David and Jesus. And to argue for that same point, Jesus is not of the tribe of priests. He's, he did not come in to usher in more law for us to keep. He came aside, apart from it to be a new kind of savior, a new kind of apart from law deliverer based on what he has to give us with his blood and resurrection, not based on commandments. He is also called here the the subterranean root of David, which I like this because it means that he's the source of David, right? Because roots are sources of trees. Elsewhere in the Bible, he's called the branch, meaning he comes genealogically, the branch of David, which means he comes genealogically from David later in the story. But here he's called the root which means he's the source of David. David wouldn't have existed without Jesus first being the Son of God and kind of allowing his existence to be what it was. And so that means there's a theological connection. Everything David was a thousand years before Christ was a glimpse of who Jesus would later be, many things, but in this case, a kingly conqueror, a Goliath slayer who engulfed, chewed on, and spit out death for us, just like a heavenly lion. All right, and and here's, I was mentioning before to start this whole thing. There's a twist here, though, in the vision. So that's kind of what we're seeing first is this this huge, like lion-like, victorious picture, kingly picture of Jesus who's going to take that scroll and solve problems for us. He's the only one that can do it. But but here's the twist. The vision goes on. The twist is the way he did this conquering, the way he reigned as a king, the way he fought our battles – was not in a very lion-like way at all, at least as we understand it. All right, so we've got to keep reading for this. The second thing we see in the vision, after the scroll and the lion being the initial kind of visual to the solution, is a slain lamb who's now standing. So it's as if John, looking at the lion, hearing about all these things we just looked at, kind of like blinks or squints and just gets steps over to the side a little bit and kind of looks at him from a different angle. And all of a sudden, the lion starts to look a little bit more like a lamb. So this is really important. We're moving from the problem to the identified solution, being the lion, the son of God, to now the how the solution is exactly going to come into being, which is the lamb. This is crucial for for Christian theology and understand this. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, right? So past tense. Which means John is seeing this after Jesus' death and now resurrection. We know this because we know it was written like around 80-90, but also just theologically, he has seen this after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now he's standing in this victorious posture. Which means he's no longer lying down in the tomb, right? He's alive. He's risen. But like Jesus' body kept his scars after his resurrection. If you guys didn't know this or haven't read this before, after Jesus rose from the dead and his body was mended and all the ways that last song got at, and Peter was talking about the biology of it a little bit, even though that all took place, he had scars from his crucifixion still in his hands and in his side where that spear was pierced uh, uh, after his death. All right, so he maintained scars. In, in the same way here in the vision, uh, kind of on the, on the tail or the heels of the lion imagery, we see the lamb he's still maintaining his identity as the lamb. So the lamb was not just a stepping stone to to the lion or to to the resurrection, but Jesus will always maintain his identity as the slain, blood-spilt lamb for us. Again, this is crucial Christian gospel stuff to understand. And to see it this way, this is maybe helpful as well. In verse 7, The lamb is the one who took the scroll from God's hands, right? Not the lion. So you talk about what what the solution is here and how exactly Jesus saves. It's not the lion that takes the scroll. It's distinctly the lamb Jesus that takes the scroll from God's hands and solves the problem of sinners not being able to access God and sinners not being able to see God's face and sinners being hellbound and sentenced to to death. The lamb is the the solver. Obviously the lion too, but the lamb is the one in the vision that takes the the scroll. The son of God lion was worthy, but the way the scroll of our salvation, the impossibility of our salvation was taken on was through his lambness or really his incarnation into human flesh and then his suffering, ultimately his suffering and death. So it, it says here, Worthy are you to take the scroll, this is an important linguistic thing, for you were slain. So worthy are you to take on the problem, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from all nations. So in other words, it's not by Jesus' teachings, it's not by Jesus' exorcisms, it's not by his walking on water, or his multiplying of bread and fish, that he ransomed people from all nations. It's not by those things, even though those things are important and point ahead to his death and in some ways lead us there. They're not on the same level. Distinctly, it was by Jesus' blood, by his slain, that we were ransomed or bought back from sin. People from all nations, people like us, sinners like us, people far from God. Ransom here, um, and actually we sang about this, I think, was it redemption or ransom, Peter? I think we had a song with a ransom in it, didn't we? I'm trying to remember, but um, the the ransom idea here, uh, redemption idea. Redemption means to buy back from slavery. Ransom's kind of the same idea, to pay off a party uh, to get someone back. And so ransom, though, here kind of linked with the idea of redemption means to buy back from slavery. In this case, slavery to sin. So this is actually a very blatant callback to the Exodus event in the Old Testament where Israel was slave from Egyptian slavery and in the process, a lamb's blood was spilt and painted over their, their doors uh, to save them from the wrath of God and the judgment of God as well, which was coming over all the land of Egypt to kind of instigate Pharaoh to let Israel go. Bigger story behind that, if you haven't read that, that might have kind of gone over your head, but at least get this. There's Exodus language here, and, and the idea is there's a new Exodus happening in reference to Christ. But going back to the first Exodus, in Exodus 12, God says, the blood of the Lamb will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And this is the key. God says, when I see the Lamb of the blood, or the blood of the Lamb, when I see the Lamb's blood over your, painted over your home, I will pass over you. This is where Jewish Passover begins. I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The, the plague is the death of the firstborn, of every home, animal and human being. This is the final plague through Moses that comes. But God says, y- you won't be spared the plague unless a lamb's blood is slain. He gives them a way out. But there, there's this thing that has to happen. A lamb has to die, and its blood has to be seen by God to, to enable the Passover to happen. So the idea here is it's the same with Jesus. In the New Testament now, Jesus is, and in the vision, Jesus' lamb-like blood does the same thing. It buys us back from slavery to sin. So it's a payment, but it also does this. It also deters the wrath of God away from us. It deters punishment, which is death, which has to come, because sin is that grievous and bad, and God is that just but it deters the wrath or the punishment of God away from us as if we paint Christ's blood over the doorposts of our heart when we trust in him. That's a big thing to understand. God has wrath. God has wrath. That's actually a really good thing in the face of injustice and evil out there. right? Like If I I asked you guys or told you guys, maybe for the first time, that the, the anger you have over some kind of evil or injustice in the world out there that the anger you have for that, God shares that with you, you would probably say, wow, that's great. That actually makes me, even for non-Christians, that, that might make them th- think like, oh, I, maybe I like the Christian God. Maybe we share more in common than I thought originally. Right? So that it's a good thing that God is angry at evil. Right? It'd be sinful for him not to be. But here's the bad thing. Or bad news for us. Not bad as in morally bad, just the bad thing for us is when we realize the evils are also in here. I was talking to my daughter, actually, during communion on Good Friday, she's into Dungeons and Dragons right now, this role-playing thing. She has this book, all these, like, crazy, cool, but just dark creatures, you know, like there's in there, and she's kind of drawing them out. she has to draw these things, and anyway, lots of conversations around this for us. It's been good. I actually love that she loves it, but um, I told her that the, you know, the, and something Spence, I think you said, maybe think of this during communion prep, but, um, I told her that Jesus came to slay those types of creatures, these dark demons, but that's good news. The bad news is is those dark demons and creatures and D&D type things that she kind of loves to, to draw and think, well, this is like the darkest thing ever, that's actually six inches under her chin as well, in her heart. That creature lives in here. And so when we celebrate God destroying evil, out there we also have to see the problem of, well, if he destroys evil on that level, I'm toast. I'm toast. This is where the Passover comes in play, you see. God is just. He's he's judging. He's pouring out his wrath, but he's also providing a way to deter it away from those who are covered by the blood of a third party. Not your blood. He's not saying, cut yourself and prove yourself worthy. He's saying, believe in me and just listen to my solution which is a lamb's blood. In the Old Testament, now in the New Testament, a second kind of exodus event is happening for all of us. The wrath of God is coming, but the way out is God himself. The way out is God's solution. The way out is God saying, believe in my son and paint his blood over the doorposts of your heart and body and mind, and I will pass over you in the end. In other words, the love of God saves us from the wrath of God. God's love saves us from God's wrath. But both are in the hand of God and both are kind of part of his solution for eradicating evil without crushing us in the process. All right, more to say on that in a minute, but let's talk about this third, third piece here. A new song, which again we sang about before. It says a new song is being sung around the throne by the angels, the elders, and the creatures. And the Bible talks about many kinds of new things. First and foremost, probably like a New Testament. And associated with that New Testament, a new name for Christians who believe, a new creation that's inaugurated with the resurrection, new commandments of Jesus that focus on love as he, as he first loved us, a new tomb Jesus was laid in, a new earth that we await for when he comes back, and here, a new song. And here's the thing. All of those things I just listed out, all of them somehow, whether direct or indirect, have to do with Jesus' death. Actually, if you read Psalm 40, it's a Psalm of David, a new song is mentioned there in connection with David's sufferings, which then explains why we see a new song here in connection with the second David's sufferings, Jesus's sufferings, the root of David's uh, sufferings as, as well. But here, here's a question I want to ask. So I have all the, the lyrics of the new song are, are up here. Um, this is the whole thing. They probably sang it over and over, but this is the the whole song. These are the lyrics of the new song. But here's a question for you. Isn't it interesting that they don't sing about the resurrection? Isn't it interesting they don't sing about the resurrection of Jesus here? Why do you think that is? I know it's Easter Sunday, you guys are like, what's going on? Uh, But why do you think that is? Why is the lamb the focus? Why is his blood the focus? Why is his slain the focus? and given more ink in this song. Now, I think the resurrection is implied, of course, and obviously extremely important. Without it, Christianity falls. But here it's not a part of the new song's lyrics. So I think the answer is, when you factor in that this is a song, that this is worship happening here, the reason that the resurrection is kind of strangely absent has to do with how much more the death of Jesus reveals his love for us than the resurrection does. Both are important, but the death of Jesus is linked with sacrificial love more than the resurrection. It just is. The resurrection demonstrates power over death and makes us cheer, and like that last song, makes us taunt death. But the death of Jesus beforehand makes us sing a different kind of song, a song of love and thankfulness, and really saying, God must really, really love me if he didn't withhold his one and only son gave him up to die for me, he must really love me. And I can't even begin to fathom that kind of love. I know I don't deserve it. He must have got it wrong. I'm not worthy of that. But this is the song that we sing. Like, in other words, when I want to show my love for my wife and kids, I don't flex my muscles to them. Or, like, Emmett, watch me do pull-ups, you know? I've done that before, actually. And he's like, know oh, this is weird, but he's like, oh my gosh, dad did pull-ups, you know, because uh, he's like, I want to do that. He can't do one yet, but anyway, that's not like me showing love for them, though. When I, when I want to show love for my wife and kids, I don't flex my muscles or do pull-ups. Instead, I come underneath them, sacrifice for them, and bleed for them. That shows love. In some way, I suffer for the, for the sake of their comfort. I save them from something. That's what ultimately love is, and like you, at any wedding you go to with vows, that's kind of like, that's what vows ultimately get at. And all vows are a little bit different, but they're promises to sacrifice for one another. Sickness won't make me run away from you, wife or husband. Right? That, that's a version of that, but there are many. That's love. The Bible agrees. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we are sinners, Christ was raised? No. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's where we see the love of God. 1 John 4.10, this is love. He's going to define it. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what love is. That's how we know he loves us. If he just flexed his muscles and and rose from the dead, but there's no atonement for sin and no demonstration of love, we'd be missing a, a huge part of the puzzle, right? So when people say on Good Friday sometimes, like, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. did Anybody hear that two days ago? That's a great thing, amen. At the same time, don't go too fast past Good Friday. I mean, Good Friday's not just he had to die so that he'd be raised. No, he had to die because he loved you guys. He wanted to die for you. That was, that, that's the reason everything exists is for the sake of his death. Everything exists for the sake of that plan A. It was not God's plan B. Everything exists for it. The vision's helping us to see this. Jesus will always be the lamb. He didn't lose that status, right? So, in other words, isn't this the main reason we sing every Sunday? The resurrection proves to us that his death was really for us and not just sentiment. Meaning, it really accomplished something. He really was dying for the sins of the world. Good Friday worked. He wasn't a madman or a liar. The resurrection proved all of this. Death has been defeated. But what makes us sing a new song to God ultimately? What woos us? What makes us want to see Jesus burst out of that tomb? Is it not because we are under the sentence of death because of our sins? And is it not because God sent his son to bear that sentence for us? And is it not because we want the love that he showed us there at the cross to be shown stronger than death? See, the death and resurrection of Jesus amplify each other. Left alone, they both wither. And and they fail. And and they fail to become good news for us. That's why we're seeing both play off each other here in heaven. This is like... a heavenly, eternal. This is the way it's going to be forever. He will always be this way because the gospel will always be this way and because truth will always be this way. All right. So a, a couple things here. Um, where do we go with this? I, I put here applying a big God apocalyptic passage because, um, in one sense, this is really it's really easy. The the, the, the application is read this and stand in awe. And be thankful this this is the case, and, and I'll talk about that. Uh, another sense it gets it gets kind of tricky with with the details, um, but but here's here's the two angles that I was thinking of this week uh, that I think God has for us that I want to pass on. So the the first is the Trinitarian angle. So here's what I mean by this: basically, what we're seeing in the, in the passage is a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring about redemption for us. And, and here here's how it works. I wrote it out for just for clarity here. The Father has the scroll of the problem of our salvation in his hand. He identifies, God the Father identifies the problem. He gives the scroll to his son, the lamb, to open and to ransom people for God with his blood. And now the seven spirits of God are going out into all the earth to spread this message. Isn't that the story of the Bible right there? This is just apocalyptic version, you know, a revelation version, kind of John version stuff, but that's the whole story of the Bible. The seven spirits aren't like literal there. There's only one spirit of God, but seven is symbolic. Just like the lamb has seven eyes, he doesn't really have seven eyes. He's seeing this to say it's symbolic for fullness. So Christ has perfect vision. He has perfect foresight. He, he is the, the ultimate seer of problems and solver of them. And so the seven spirits means the spirit of God in his fullness is going out into the earth, saving people like us from their sins, empowering the church to preach the gospel and say, all this stuff's actually true. It's not mythology. This is true. This is like, I was talking to, speaking to my kids, talking to Jane again. <laughs> She's not here. She's going to be her second service. Hope I can say this to her, uh, with her in the room. But um, she, she, we were talking about the, um, the, the chimera. You guys know what that is in Greek mythology? The I think it's, it's a creature with the head of a dragon the head of a goat and the head of a lion. Am I right on that? You guys know this? I think, it's, I think that's what it is. It's the chimera. And she was like saying, I mentioned something about her before, but she's like, that's the coolest thing ever. Anyway, I forgot how it came up. But I, I had th- all this on my mind and I thought, that's not that far from Revelation, actually. You know, like, it's, Jesus is kind of like the chimera. He's, he's like a lion. He, he, he's also a lamb. And he has the face of a human like us as well. All right, take that for what it's worth. But but here here's the difference. All that stuff, the chimera, that's mythology. This stuff's actually historical and true. That's a massive chasm in between of significance for our lives, right? We can be entertained by the former. We can maybe allow the former things to point us to things that matter more, like Jesus. That's good. It's rich, actually. I encourage you in that. The things of culture and the world that, that God has here by design, but but Jesus himself is is the true thing, all right? Anyway, this is the Trinitarian angle. This is what we call big God theology in the biz, all right? This is not a picture of a God who is lonely or needy, but a Trinitarian God who is complex, unapproachable, and yet imminent and close to us and gentle and strangely human-like at the same time. In fact, fully human one who came into the world to share himself with us because he loves us and he wants to save us from sin and death. And this is crazy, but awesome, right? Christianity is many things, but it's not boring. This isn't boring. Unitarianism is boring. It's more boring than Trinitarianism anyway, but the idea that God is not a trinity, that's a much more boring theology and picture of reality than the trinity. The trinity is much more creative and complex and artistic and impossible to comprehend, yet kind of possible, because God wants to reveal it to us. All right, that's another sermon, though. That's the first thing. The second, this is basically saying the story of the Bible is there. The second thing is to invite you into it. So um, there's a bigness of God in this passage, but also an invitation. John is being invited in here by God and, and the angel showing him this vision to see just how wonderful and eternal the idea of the gospel is. Kind of like us today, this is, and I encourage you when you read Revelation, that's kind of what's happening. You're being drawn in to see, maybe for those of you who are Christians, just how significant and big and powerful and beautiful the things that you already believe are. But if you don't believe yet, to show you for the first time that this this is, these are the high and mighty things that have come very low for us to hear with our ears and to sense and to understand. This passage is simply about the gospel the core of the Christian faith. And it's not an image of fear. It's trippy, it's odd, it's heavenly. But here's the thing with theology, and I was kind of saying this before, but theology is very difficult because God is like this. He's transcendent. But it's also easy because he's a revealer. Like when you ever study, whenever you study theology, you'll have moments where this is really difficult. Well, that's because God is really difficult in like a I can understand him kind of way but you'll also have moments where you'll say, this is really easy, I can understand this, which should blow us away. That we can actually understand things about God who said, let there be light, and there was. Let there be planets, and there were. We can understand him. The reason we can is because he became human and he spoke our language. The reason we can is because he's a revealer. He wants to show himself off. He wants to be known. He's not hiding If God wanted to hide, why in the world did He become human? Why in the world did He become like us and walk around us and talk? Right? He wants to be known. He wants you guys and me to know Him. And the way all that happens is through Jesus. He is the bridge, He's the access point, He's the revelation. He's the lamb who's like a lion. And who became, became like us. And that, that's how we can understand this vision. And Revelation 5 is a good example of this. Without the gospel, how would we even begin to understand this vision, right? All right, that was kind of a bit of a sidebar. But here's the invitation. Trust Jesus to save you. And don't fear. I've talked to a lot of people before. We preached the Revelation uh, years ago now. 2011, I think it was. It's been a long time. Um, but since then, many people who have said, even recently... Revelation's always been a fearful book to read. And there are many reasons for that, some of which um, are just bad teaching or misconceptions or whatever. And I totally understand. If that's your perspective, I get it. So don't feel weird if that's your perspective. But the good news is it should be the opposite actually of fear. Like you shouldn't have to fear it because of the Lamb. You're not in Revelation reading page after page after page of God as judge who can't wait to squash you. And then he says, oh, good news, I'm coming back. We're like, no, don't come back, you know? (laughs) That's not the point. The the point is, the lamb is the posture of God, right? Don't fear. This heavenly, holy, apocalyptic image of Jesus standing victorious over all things essentially consists of him saying, look at my bloody hands and bloody side. That's, That's the posture of God towards us forever. Isn't that amazing? Yes, God is the judge of all, but here's the good news. The judge has a son, and his son is your advocate. And God is the one who sent him in the first place. So there would be a way for him to do justice without crushing us. Instead, he and his son, God and the Son and the Holy Spirit got together and planned, and they said, the lion will be crushed instead. So let him take the form of a servant. Let him take the form of a lamb and become like those we love in order to save them. Don't you love the idea of God and his triune self scheming to save you and to destroy the devil at the same time? He he has, and he is, and and he kind of will in the end. This is what we see here. And this is the vision John sees. It's, It's not of Jesus holding the Ten Commandments in hand, but instead of showing his scars, and showing his side. The risen, victorious lamb, the subterranean root of David that is now above the ground because he's been resurrected, is showing you his spilt blood and saying, it's really okay. Everything's going to be okay. Weep no more. See my scars? I love you. And all creation sings his praises and worships forever because God is like that and he'll never change so let's pray Father thank you for uh, this, this passage that gives us a glimpse into just how majestic and awesome and heavenly and um, anti-darkness uh, anti-all things evil and even like anti-our misconceptions about you in a lot of ways we all bring those you are Father thank you that you are forever the Lamb the, the, the cross was not a stepping stone to the resurrection it was the thing it is the thing that, that we wrap communion around, the thing we wrap um, remembrance around, the, the thing that we wrap this new idea of the second exodus around, deliverance, ransoming, redemption around. And in the vision, it's the lamb who's sung to you. Again, you'll always be the lion, Jesus. Praise be to God. You'll always be the king. Praise be to God. But you'll also be, a, a, you're never above your scars. You'll always show off your scars. So it will be clear forever and ever and ever that Jesus saves us and we don't save ourselves. So help us to sing in response and gladness on this Easter Sunday that the risen, victorious, slain lamb is now alive. Like he's walked out of the tomb and his scars remain to show us love and to show us what the gospel truly is. In Christ we pray. Amen.